Today's episode of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy your dream car on impulse. Or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say, yes, to a proposal from your significant other and start a family. Or find yourself in a fender bender when you least expect it. Whatever happens when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. So, contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in, check out statefarm.com today to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. Hello, friends. Welcome to the fifth episode of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Bayo. And I'm CT. And wow, have we got a doozy for you today, folks. We are talking to hired gun extraordinaire, the one, the only, Mr. Ray Swen. Whose name you might not recognize on its own. However, if you like live music and have gone to shows in the last 10 years, it's very likely you probably have seen him perform. Yes, he's played with musicians such as Childish Gambino, The Killers, Lord, The Flaming Lips, to name a few. And uh, he's someone that, yes, he self-identifies as a hired gun. CT, what's a hired gun? A hired gun is a musician that is generally added to the live lineup to fill out sounds or to do if the available limbs run out on the band members that they need someone to come in and assist them and, and fill out the sound or whatever it is. Or even sometimes it's just visual that you want more people on stage, that that is a hired gun, which, as we discussed, I think early on, is a term that before we talked to Ray, we weren't sure if it was acceptable or if it felt derogatory to the people who perform that role Mm -hmm. or have that as a career. But at least in his mind, he thinks it's a sexy term and he's into it. Yeah, he fully embraces the hired gun lifestyle. And this is one where you can really learn a lot about touring, about pyro, about production managers. And um, he's someone we've known for, I guess, 11 years now, which is kind of nice and warm. We talk a little bit about that in our conversation as well. CT, did you ever have like a conception of what a hired gun was when you were growing up? Probably not. I mean, you know, you have an idea that band lineups yeah. change, you know, like the first big show I ever saw that really changed my life in a non-ironic way was the Allman Brothers Band right. in 99. And, you you know, you know that that's not obviously Dwayne Allman up there, but hearing Derek Trucks rip a, rip a really blazing slide solo still affects you. Yeah, of course. Um, but the, I, I guess the question is maybe, you know, certain members of a band, but then you go to a show and there's for lack of a better term, some other randos on stage. And those randos can be the best musicians on the stage. They are the ones who you can be thinking about when you leave the show and you don't even know what their name is. Yes. That's why I'm saying. I had more an idea of, of the shifting winds of a band lineup, say, yeah. and less about hired guns. But that's also sometimes, which I think you might have a good example of, hired guns is, is an interesting topic because some bands, while they need the musical help, maybe conceptually don't want it out there that, you know, that more people are playing than just who you think of as the band. It's true. There's a kind of famous example. Some might say they're the biggest band on the planet. What do you think is the biggest band on the planet? Um, <laughs> Chainsmokers featuring Coldplay. Okay, you're right. Second biggest. Um, and also, I think, I don't think there's actually a legal thing, but we should probably put the term allegedly in front of all this because I think they're... That's true. Nothing's been confirmed, yeah. but we're doing some deep research. And this is something that I'd heard about a while ago. But actually, all I'm going to do to start is quote Mr. Billy Joel. There was an article from 2011. I cannot say what the source is. I'm seeing it posted secondhand on a message board right now. But So deep original Yeah, yeah, this is deep original research. Is there more to a U2 show than just the four members of the Irish band? Billy Joel, now here's our source, says there's more than meets the eye. During a lecture and performance this week at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, Joel told the crowd that Bono's going to kill me for this before saying that when he attended a U2 show in New York, he learned that additional musicians were underneath the stage supporting the quartet. 
U2's use of supporting players, not unlike Pink Floyd during the 70s, has long been rumored, but never openly reported. The U2 camp has not commented on Joel's bombshell. Now, I did a little further research. And Bono did not kill Billy Joel. No, no, they're both still with us. But, and this is actually someone in our crew had told me this years and years ago, that there's a gentleman who has been under the stage playing keyboard with U2 since the Joshua Tree. Now, you listen to that record, there's keyboards, organ sounds, and when you watch them on stage, there's a guitar, a bass, a vocal, and a drum. So there's all sorts of sounds that are not being generated by the four people on the stage. And there's a gentleman, his name is Terry Lawless. Now, I'm not sure if he's actually been with them since Joshua Tree, but he is at least one man who on his website, terrylawless.com, says that he does, in fact, play under the stage and tour with you too. And I think that's a kind of, it's kind of fascinating because there's a lot of times myths about, you know, like iconic three people in a band, four, five. And to tour, you need a whole team of support once you get to a certain level and how a band positions themselves, how they look forward facing. It can be a fascinating thing. And, uh, you know, you too, they have people who are playing notes that are making the concert sound what it is, and uh, you're not seeing them. Sometimes, I've, I've actually seen bands, and I, I, I can't remember exactly which ones, but when I was like 13, I would go see a band and there'd be like extra people who were off in the side but playing guitar. And Ray is one who's been on stage. Uh, you know, I got to see him play at the Forum last year with Gambino. He's ripped solos front and center at Gambino shows at arenas all over the world. He music directed for Lord. That's a whole separate job. Job that perform. yeah, that you can perform. And uh, I don't know this. I feel like this of all our conversations so far is the most informative about touring. Well, I think in particular with Ray, you get a sense of how, as he puts it, somewhat unwittingly, how this became his career and how he's pursued it and how stuff has happened. How one gig has begat another. When I was listening back to this, it is kind of crazy how charmed and how sort of as you put a Joe Walsh quote to it uh, towards the end, like how, what a story it's been for him. Absolutely. And a story that, again, is public-facing, but not one that he probably mm-hmm. has been able to tell necessarily. Yeah. Another thing I also enjoyed is how he he talks shit about the first Vampire Weekend he, show. Yeah, he gave a, an unfavorable review to a show that we played in Vancouver early on. That hit me hard, man. Well, it's good to bounce out because Winston Marshall, who we talked to in episode two, was very complimentary That's true. about the first show. So it's good to, you know, get That's, yeah, all yeah. sides. You don't want to get, yeah, exactly. Uh, so anyway, here is our conversation with Ray Swen. We're talking today with our good friend. Can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, I'm Ray Swen. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all me. you need to know. Yeah. Check out his wiki. Where are we right now, CT? Uh, CT, we, where are we? We are currently talking in CNC Music Factory. Our home base in Eagle Rock, Wait, Los Angeles. Wait, so you Angeles. are calling the studio CNC Music Factory. So the podcast is not called CNC Music Factory. That was its working title. Uh, there was some the, potential legal thorniness That's there. such a shame. But we are calling the studio CNC Music Factory. And I guess to set the scene a little bit, today's date is April 16th. We are between two weekends of Coachella. Ugh. And I guess, Ray, what, what did you do last weekend? Uh, I was playing. Not the wedding on Saturday. Not, not the, the wedding st- on Saturday. That's civilian stuff. The no Friday played with Childish Gambino, and uh, yeah, it was kind of a weird closing of a big loop for us because I remember the first time I played there with Gambino was like in 2012. And, and what was your slot then? It was I think it was like at four in the afternoon, four in the afternoon on the main stage, and I remember our computers overheating and our playback guy having to put like a, a, a heat blanket over himself and then over the computers and all you could see was this like silver yeah so we've, we've, we've <laughs> did come, he get the job done or there were maybe a few skips but you know it, everything worked out fine nobody was the wiser and the best difference between I guess seven years ago and now was that we didn't have to then fly to the other side of the country do a show at I think like George Washington University and somewhere in Rhode Island and then fly back and then do it again like this whole second week in a Coachella thing is really it's kind of a mind fuck I don't know <laughs> for our listeners who may not be familiar how long have you been working with Gambino and what do you do for Gambino I started playing with him in 2011 and the only reason I kind of did was because 
Ludwig Gorenson, who is the music director at the time, who's gone on to do obviously amazing things with, I mean, he just won an Oscar for Oscar the winner. score for Black Panther and working on a lot of amazing albums with a lot of different people. You know, his career was taking off at the time. And yeah, he needed somebody to, actually, no, that wasn't even it. There used to be a violent, there used to be two violin players in the Gambino band. Two? <laughs> what? Yeah. I think for better or for worse, you can still find that stuff on YouTube. <laughs> and like, yeah, there used to be two violin players and the one violin player was from Sweden. And maybe, I think there's like a statute of limitations on this shit, right? Like he maybe couldn't go to Canada and reasonably expect to get back into the country. Uh, so he needed somebody to fill in. Eric is his name. And, uh, in case the authorities are <laughs> checking up on him. Yeah, yeah no, he, it's all right. He's, he's absconded to Sweden at he's this point. Sweden. So he's in Sweden. And and as far yeah, as I can tell, he's, and you could, yeah, we'll just bleep out his last name or something. <laughs> yeah, he couldn't make the gig. And so I went and filled in in Vancouver. And after that, Ludwig was MDing and playing guitar at the time. And, you know, he's so busy with all the different shows he was working on, all the different movies he was working on. He was like, you play guitar too? All right, cool. You want to play guitar? It's like, yeah. Sure. And at the time, it was so different because people were still coming to shows, like expecting a different kind of experience, really. I don't think people were really taking the music part of the show. They didn't have the expectations for it, where they just wanted to see the funny. I mean, Donald used to actually open the show with a half hour stand up set. It was a different time. So I've been playing with him since then. And uh, it's been really great to see something come from... I mean, that's an we, incredible growth. We were from just, doing a tight 30 minutes of comedy. Tight 30 minutes and then like a tight 40 of music and in clubs, you know? Yeah. In clubs all over the U.S. And to see it go from that to just like any other working band, I guess, like going from that to theaters and then eventually to arenas this last fall, headlining Coachella, headlining, you know, it's really great to see for all the people who've been together for this long. People like Ludwig, people like Donald, and like a lot of the band has been with him since then too. So yeah, it's been really great. So what was your experience like uh, this past Friday? <laughs> this past Friday, I have to be honest. Like uh, my my heart rate didn't even go up when I went on stage, and I'm embarrassed to say it because like that's another loop closed for me. Ten years ago, I did my first Coachella when I was playing with the Killers. And that was a headlining set. And I remember the thing I remember about that was Paul McCartney had played the night before and for some reason didn't use all of his pyro. And so our crew... So you had leftover McCartney pyro? We had leftover Holy McCartney shit. pyro. That's pretty cool. With, That's very sweet of him. We also had a crazy-ass Australian pyrotech named Clint. Who, Wait, did the killers have their own pyro? We had our own pyro, so we knew where that was coming. You know, this is why you rehearse, so you know when the pyro is coming. <laughs> but we had, our pyrotech was really excited to have all these new cues to shoot off. Quick definition, pyro, if you're not familiar, is sort of the explosions People and fire. fire right? I would assume <laughs> yeah. so, but it's We've never felt- had pyro. We've had some like had uncoordinated fireworks. I feel like confetti, but no, confetti. we've never done a pyro tour. And you, I guess <laughs> you you've bubbles? probably done multiple pyro tours. Well, so that was the worst of it when you have unexpected pyro. Extra pyro. There were all these cues. There were all these points where, you know, when you're not expecting things to be explode. And I was always towards the like upstage, towards the back of the stage. So I would be the closest to where the fireworks were going off or to where the dragons were blowing up and like would you have like flashes of James Hetfield in Toronto I believe it was where he turning, got lit on fire I remember turning around at one point with my guitar not knowing that there was a, a dragon about <laughs> to go off and my guitar detuned like two oh two God. whole steps I was like okay <laughs> the the worst of it was when there would be like a waterfall of just sparkles coming down from the top and I remember one time just at the end of the show I turn around and I look back and my amp is on fire. <laughs> and I felt really good about myself for about 45 minutes. I was like, yeah, I blew up the amp. That's how hard You're I was rocking out. so hard. And then the, our pyrotech comes running up to me after the show. He's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We didn't like rate it correctly or whatever. One of the sparkles got Jesus. into the amp and set it on fire. So I felt really cool for about 40 minutes and then realized it was like, oh, well, it's just that was just bad technique, I guess, <laughs> like is what happened. Yeah, anyway, so closing a 10-year loop on Coachella, it was really interesting because I don't, you know, that's probably the most nervous I've ever been. You grow up knowing that Coachella is like, this is the thing. This means that you're doing it. You're doing it for real. And even though people weren't coming there to see me necessarily, but I was like, this is pretty cool. 
cut to 10 years later and it was like there were a couple guys in the band, a couple guys and girls in the band who hadn't done it before. And our keyboard player, Lynette, who's just amazing, she's on a whole nother level. I saw her tearing up as she started playing her first, like just her and Donald playing together. And I was grateful to be able to see it that way. I didn't cry. My heart rate still didn't go up, but it was really, it was really nice to see. Did your heart rate go up when you performed with the Killers? Oh no, that's probably the in the top five most nervous I've ever been. That was a big one for me. Well, maybe then going back ten years. Well, first of all, we've sort of done this with a few other terms with a few other people. But sure. How do you take the term hired gun? I think I've leaned into it. I'm not, I'm not wearing them today, but like usually I'm wearing cowboy boots and like. I've kind of leaned into it pretty hard, <laughs> like actually. The gunslinger aspect. Yeah, of that. yeah, okay. yeah. And I, I like that about, like, and the idea that, you know, I get paid to do what I do. Part of it is traveling and just, like, use my skill mm-hmm. wherever there's a demand for it. And I'm okay with it. I think it's better than, what's a synonym for hired gun? Like, work for Ringer. hire? Ringer, I don't, it doesn't feel as, there's something still sexy about a hired gun. Even oh, though yeah. mercenary is maybe the more, that's a little scary. The more literal one. Yeah, yeah, that's a little scary. I mean, a hired, like a mercenary just seems like a cold kind of killing you know, machine. Yeah, no or a, conscience. A, a sell sword to fully integrate into the game of there Thrones you go. atmosphere. There you go. But no, I, I'm, I'm fine with hired gun. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine okay, with well hired then, gun. Now that we know that now that's that a we term. Now that we know we can use that term and talk about it. Were you guys it like scared of saying that? <laughs> we don't know. You never know. Because you guys, the are term get- that I'm thinking of specifically is is roadie, which some people consider very derogatory, and oh. some people in the tech community, in the tech community, yeah, yeah. But do you guys make the distinction between a roadie and a hired Absolutely. gun? Absolutely, yeah, yes. yeah. No, the, yeah, the, yes. so, so yeah. in the like tech community, sometimes roadie is considered a bit of a slur, as opposed to what a tech or a technician. Yeah, technician, tech. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so then we're just kind of wondering in the I guess hired gun community now that we know we can say that <laughs> if there, yeah, we're similar associations. But I guess yeah, what. What was your journey? What was your like kind of first hired gig stuff like that? Because um, we met, yeah, we would have met Ray. We met at the almost acoustic Christmas, did we not? That was the first time we like talked to each other. I think you know what I sent you guys that picture this morning just yeah. because I was like, wow, I've known these guys for this long, yeah, in a roundabout way, yeah, you know, absolutely. Like it, that was two thousand eight. That was in Paris. At okay, at yeah, 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 we did that show oh, together. Show, so, yes. so we. We would have been crossing paths with you guys when you were playing with the Killers a couple That's times. Right. So we saw you I in saw Paris. You, I saw you at Richards on Richards. Exactly. We didn't meet each other then, but I, I was touring with a band called Louis the Fourteenth from San Diego, even though everybody thought they were English. Um, the way I started, none of it was intentional. I went to school to be a doctor, like every other Asian kid who went to UCSD, and you know, probably still is the case. But I'd switched majors from biology to psychology at some point because I was just like, I can't hack it at OCHEM. And like, I started playing out. I found the indie music scene in San Diego at the time. And I'd also come from realizing that I wasn't ever going to hack it as a classical violinist, which is how I'm trained, I guess. I've been playing violin since I was three. And that was always the dream. Have you guys played with an orchestra before? No, not a not full. full. String sections, quartets. I hope you like guys that. get to do it someday because there's nothing like playing with a hundred other people who are doing the same thing. You know, who are trying to put on the same show at the same time. I really always thought I'd want to do that. But then once I got to college and I was getting my ass kicked in competitions, in violin competitions and stuff, I was like, "Wow, it's not going to happen for me. It's not going to happen for me." So thankfully, I found. So then you went down to the Casbah. I, I, it took a couple of years for me to okay. get to the Casbah, but like <laughs> I found jazz, I found Django and Grappelli, and it was like, oh, I can do other things with the violin. And I found out that, like, oh, I can improvise, I can play stuff that's not on the page and stuff like that. By the end of my college career, by the time I was Your about time to graduate, at university. my time at university, <laughs> <laughs> very formal. I know this, it's very intercontinental, too. Do we call it university here? Anyway, um, by the end of that, I was playing out so much. I I'd scheduled all my classes to be on Tuesdays and Thursdays just so I wouldn't have to be at school very much. I was just playing with the band that I was in at the time. And I graduated. I didn't even know that I didn't walk because I didn't even know that I had graduated, but I was playing so much at the time that it was like when the diploma came in the mail, I was like, oh, okay, I did do it. Great. Which happened to be around the time that I got on to my first tour with Louis the Fourteenth. They needed a cellist. And I was playing in a cover band in an Irish bar in Claremont Mesa called the Blarney Stone. 
we were doing like acoustic Weezer covers, and I was playing violin. It was it was a it was that a strange scene. Pretty tight. And in it also sounds like six two thousand seven. You know what? And I oh like to God. think that it's something that only could have existed in San Diego at the time with like <laughs> you know, um, with a band called Fever Crotch. Um, Fever Crotch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fever Crotch. Uh, Sean, O'Don- Sean O'Donnell and Matt yeah. Gorney, shout out. But I wonder if you guys have crossed paths with this guy before. With Fever Crotch? No, no, not with Fever Crotch. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine at the time, O, who was a great skate photographer and just kind of raconteur. I don't know if you guys have crossed paths. It seems like that guy has met. Unless he was in the, the Jack White band, The Raconteurs. No, I no, feel no. Like he, he, was, yeah. <laughs> he was in a band called Fluff and Olive Lawn. Anyway, he put me in touch with the Louis XIV guys. He knew that they were looking for a cellist, but he was like, well. But he met you when you were playing Weezer covers. Essentially, yeah. That's how we got to know each other. Because he, he was just, he was, he, <laughs> he, he was always around. Because, you know, the guys in Fever Crotch also had their own bands. That was just, you know, that was a, <laughs> that was a money gig. Side project. So it was crazy. a money gig. It was a money gig, and it was just a good time gig. It wasn't. I can't. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. remember getting paid, but it was just nice to, you know, to play just out. Just to rip on my name is Jonas every once in a while. We'd probably close with like a Bon Jovi song, honestly. But in any case, I got put in touch with them. I auditioned for them, and they were like, "You want to go on tour?" Yeah, sure. That sounds great. Because at the time, I think I was trying to figure out if I was going to go back to graduate school. I was teaching violin. What year is this now? Two thousand seven. So okay, I gradu- right away. Yeah. I graduated in 2007. Me too, I, yeah. Was teaching. Oh, yeah, we're the same age, right? Yeah, yeah, CT, yeah. CT, how old are you? I am one year okay. your senior. I so see. We, well, like then the f- I will treat you with the... the, the, the <laughs> so that's interesting. Our touring career has been the same exact years because we well, did our first tour in 2007. That's honestly also. what's so nice about this, too, is to see that when that picture got taken, to think now... 10, 11, 12 years later, it's like, oh yeah, we're all still here. We're all still kind of <laughs> doing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which was not ever the plan for me in particular. I was like, I was going to go do that tour and then really think hard and long about going back to grad school. But that first tour I did with Louis the Fourteenth was opening for the Killers. And I got wow. shot out of a cannon. The first show that I played with Louis the Fourteenth was at Red Rocks. <laughs> and Holy that shit. Was, that was my first show on tour. I was like, oh, <laughs> well, well, I can get used to this, even though, you know, the killers went over on their sound check. So our sound check, people were already coming in. We were trying to set up our gear as people were filing in and taking their seats at Red Rocks. And you That's you know, at to, Red Rocks, yeah. they're just staring right at you there. And there's, it's quite close. Everybody's stage, got a yeah. line of sight on you because there's it goes no up. Um, there's no like video screen to take their attention. N- not at, it's just no. you and the rocks. <laughs> no, and there's still daylight. So, yeah. I mean, but uh, that was my first tour. And I did three. Wait, more. How was the, How was that show? Can you describe that show was crazy? I mean, I. I remember being nervous then. I also remember I was playing a violin through a Baldwin professional amp, which is, is it couldn't have sounded good, okay. is what I mean. <laughs> Thankfully, when I was 22, I wasn't quite as discerning. You know what I mean? I was just trying to put energy into it. And I realized too, that I was like, uh, I really like this. It's been a running joke for a while, but like, you know, I was lucky. I never had to tour in a van. You know what I mean? We started out with... I remember when they showed us our bus that picked us up at the Denver airport and there was there's a TV in the bunk. Like this is crazy. <laughs> you know. Like I'll I'll do that. We had a squirrely bus driver too that ended up getting arrested the tour after he drove us because it turned out he'd been driving on a license that had expired from like three years prior. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, you know, I got sucked in. Just describing if that's your first experience, it would feel hard to not get sucked in. I remember the first time I played while I was still in college, I used to come up every once in a while to LA from San Diego. And I played in the Carson Daly house band every once in a while. Last call? Last call, which was interesting because there were a lot of guys in that house band, like Kamasi Washington and Ryan Porter and Miles Mosley, who are all doing such amazing things now. I remember for them, it was like, you drove all the way up from San Diego for this? I was like, yeah. It's TV. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I've never been, I'm still in school. I don't know. This seems great. They were all coming off a tour with like Snoop Dogg and Lauren Hill. And they were the old heads to yeah. me at the time, even though they must have just been a couple know, years older, some couple years older. But that was my first inkling that was like, oh, this is a thing you can do. This might be a thing I can do. But I was, I was always the guy playing violin. I was always the Chinese kid playing violin. I remember the first time I did the Carson Daly show, I forgot the pickup for my violin. And it's just the one thing I couldn't forget. I remember the music director told me, bring everything that you can play, which was a mistake because I ended up bringing like two guitars, an amp, a mandolin, a violin, a banjo, like all this shit. And I walk up to the gate and they're like, 
we have all this stuff here, man. It's like, what are you, what are you doing? Anyway, I didn't bring the pickup for my violin. And, you know, the machinery that is Hollywood, they, they were like, no, we'll just go rent you one. I was like, you can do that? They came back with this bright green iridescent Barkus Berry violin. And I remember being so embarrassed. I was like, wait a minute, this isn't my training. I was supposed to be a classical violinist. What am I doing? What am I doing up here right now with this bright it green was the, violin? The color of it yeah. is what made you. Well, it it kind of hammered the point home. Okay, you know what I mean? Because I think we wrote a cue for the first guest, and I just ripped a phrase straight from like a box sonata, and they were like, "Great, let's just use that." Oh my god! If my teacher ever sees this, he's gonna <laughs> you know disown me. It's gonna be horrible. Anyway, coming back around, I think there was a way for me not to get sucked in. But it was all so new and so exciting to me. I mean, just like things are when you're that age. I was really lucky that those were my first experiences. Have you never done a van tour? I did recently do a four-date van tour in Europe (laughs) in 2015. And I was like, yeah, I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, glad this isn't a regular thing. Not to sound conceited, but I was just like, oh, yeah, this isn't as comfortable as... uh, Eight years in, you did your first... I mean, I can see that knocking it out of you, too. I mean, I remember when I first started, all the old guys telling me, like, you're going to get tired of this. I'm like, why would I ever get tired of this? Are you kidding me? The bus has Wi-Fi now. Like, this is a new thing. You know what I mean? But thankfully, it still hasn't happened to me. I mean, what is it like for you guys? Do you ever get tired when you're... Like, to the point where it's like, you know what? I'd rather be somewhere else right now. I know this is your show, but I'm just curious. No, no, no. Like, the, this is the spirit of the road taken. We like the back and, and I like, forth. I like, too, that, you know, even though it's been very different paths, it's like, as far as the timeline's concerned, we're both 12, 13 years in now. So, yeah, definitely. Although in 2007, we were in a minivan. Were we you? Did, yeah, we <laughs> slugged it out that was, in the van. That was probably the last time I had a leg up on you guys. <laughs> but we know, I mean, for, for solo touring, I drove myself everywhere. Right. I loved it in a way because I, I got to feel like I was 10 years younger in the sense, like, because I was basically doing the same thing we were doing right. when we were first starting out with the van. And um, I didn't mind it. I, I got to be honest. And and the person I traveled with didn't drive. So I literally drove myself from wow. California to New York, doing all the driving and playing shows most nights. It was pretty intense, but I wasn't mad at it. I got to say, <laughs> I mean, I think those like really early tours where you're all sharing a hotel room yeah. and you're in the van and there's truly not a moment of privacy sure. all day. That definitely can grind you out. But we haven't been there I've been forever. I mean, I suppose it's the company that you keep, too, that makes all the difference. Because, I mean, that was another thing, actually. Like on the Louis Fourteenth tour, all those guys were 10 to 15 to 20 years older than me. And there was a moment there where I was like, oh, man, I don't have stories. I don't know how to drink yet. They just had so many more years of experience on me. I was like, I don't know if I can hang with this. So I only played with them for about seven, eight months or something like mm-hmm. that. And at the end of it, I was like, yeah, I love doing this and I want to keep doing this. But I don't know if it's with these guys just because, you know, we're so different. And also yeah. for a, a large part of my career, I have been the only hired gun. You know what I interesting. mean? So it's always been an interesting dynamic where it's like you got the four guys in the band and then there's this other guy. Ripping a violin solo on that bright green. Thankfully, that bright green violin only happened the one time because every time after that, I you just, your, I, I just you mounted, I permanently mounted my violin on, on my pickup on my violin so that would never happen again. So you're opening for the Killers. How did you make the transition into their camp? So their bass tech, Mark Stormer's bass tech, it was a guy from San Diego. And when their auxiliary guy, when their hired gun needed some time away for the next record cycle, he said, you should audition. I was like, really? Okay. Yeah, sure. What do they need? And they said they needed a keyboard player who also played guitar. And I was like, okay. And at the time, I remember thinking in that particular moment, like, oh, I should have kept taking piano lessons. Shit. I I wasn't a keyboard player at the time. What it takes to call yourself an actual keyboard player, yeah. an actual piano player. I was like, I, I wasn't that. I don't consider myself that now. But I remember saying, yeah, I'll do that. And I shed for three months before that audition. And I just straight up auditioned for them. That's the first and last time I think I've auditioned for a band. Every I've been lucky that every other time it's just been like, go, go do the thing. Did they remember you at all from the Louis tour? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not well, but right. they knew me as the violin player. So I th- I can't, I, it's fuzzy now, but I can't remember if when I walked in the room, they were like, what are you doing here? 
Aren't you the violin player? Can you describe what that audition process was like? Sure. Is it straight up there? Are they playing I drove and you out play to, with them? I drove out to Vegas. This is interesting. Having this conversation is making me really recall what being nervous was like. <laughs> I drove out <laughs> to Vegas. Now that you're dead inside. I dro- yeah. yeah, now that I'm dead inside. I drove out to Vegas with a friend of mine, my roommate at the time, actually. I was like, I just need somebody to keep me from like driving the car off the road. And drove out to Vegas, got a shitty room, and waited for the audition. Went in. Brandon was actually very, very on it. He knew exactly how things were supposed to be done. And he was like, nope, you're voicing that wrong. You're voicing that wrong. You're voicing that wrong. I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And sir, what does voicing mean just for our oh, non, voicing, non-musical so I was, listeners? I was, I was just playing, I was playing the, the chords on the keyboard not the way that they were meant to be played. I was playing the wrong notes in the wrong order. Not, they the were right the right notes, notes in the wrong order. The right notes in the wrong order, exactly right. So I came away from that first audition feeling like, oof, I don't know. And then they called me back for a second one. And I fixed all the voicing problems. And I felt good about it. Didn't have to take my roommate back with me that time because <laughs> I didn't think my heart was going to explode. And on the way back from Vegas, it's like a Brandon Flowers song. It's the skies darkened and then the rain started coming down. <laughs> and then there was a traffic jam on the 15. And then I saw lightning off in the hills. As in, and as I'm driving through, thinking to myself, I crushed that audition. I crushed that audition. <laughs> I swear, I saw a ball of light in front of the car, a white light with a ring of purple around it. I was like, what the hell is that? And then my entire field of vision went white. I'm not making this up. Like, I thought I was dead. I was like, wait a minute. I just got hit by a bolt of lightning. What the fuck? And slowly, my vision came back. Like so while fa- you were in motion? It faded from white back to the road in front of me. I was like, holy shit. I remember like Googling this as soon as I got home because there was no Googling in the car at the time. Like, Just like looking up, oh, wait, our car's grounded? Like, did, what, what the hell happened? What the, I, I'm still pretty certain that I you know, went through a bolt of lightning. And five minutes after getting, that was the exact moment when they they decided that's it was when their be manager you. that's when their manager called and was like you got it I was like huh. okay <laughs> I mean I thought I was dead a second ago so that's that's pretty cool that is a Brandon Flowers song <laughs> that is I don't <laughs> think probably I, a pretty good one you know what I don't think I ever told him that story I I think again statute of limitations maybe it's not so pertinent anymore but yeah I don't think I ever told him that. No traffic jam on the 15, lightning mm-hmm. in the hills, mm-hmm. skies darkening. <laughs> I, yeah. I think maybe you changed the 15, though, to a sexier interstate. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the 10? I don't know. Some, you want three numbers in it. Right, three right. numbers is better for this song. I forget what we're talking about now, though. No, just about how well, that, you got into the, back fray. the audition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What an incredible story. And then, so how long were you in their camp? Like, what was the. I did the whole like? day and age cycle with them, which was 2008 to 2010. And honestly, that tour. I feel like that's how I learned how to behave. That's how I learned how to be a hired gun. It wasn't just the music or the performing side of things, but it was also like, oh, wow, there's the so many other things that go into putting on a show. And at the time, I traveled with the crew, so I learned what front of house did. I learned what lighting did. I learned what riggers did. I learned what the stage carps did. I learned what crazy pyro guys do and like why they have to hang out by themselves because their <laughs> room is off limits to everybody else and like what a production manager does, what a tour manager does, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm grateful that I got to learn it in that operation because it was a well-run, tightly run. And they'd been doing it at a high level for a while. For years then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I kind of consider to be my formative years for, I guess, what I do now. But yeah, 2008 to 2010. So there must have been a lot of firsts in there. A lot of firsts. Like, I think my number one most nervous was... I can't believe how much I'm talking about being nervous. I'm dead inside now. I want that to be clear. <laughs> I'm stone cold. I am a mercenary now. Stone cold pro. Mercenary I am yeah, killing yeah. machine. But at the time, the most nervous I ever was was before Saturday Night Live. I think because, we can we can share yeah, share in that because, uh, feeling. Because I mean, even longer than any relationship you might have with like what Coachella might be like, Saturday Night Live you know, it predates us. It's been there. And it has a mythology that you consume as a kid from various sources and whatever. And because of all those reruns that used to be on Comedy Central, it was like all the bands that you loved that played on Saturday Night Live. It's like, oh yeah, that was... There's also something, I think live music concerts are performed live. So there's, there's a certain element of, you know, this is the one time you're doing this for the day for these people to experience in that room. 
I think this is this was true also for other TV shows, but because it was a TV show with cameras that makes you nervous, yes. adding the live element, this is like literally your one shot, sure. and it's being documented in a five-camera HD shoot. And also, <laughs> Tina, Tina Fey's just like right over there, yeah. and she just walked in in the Sarah Palin thing, and then like, I remember... Crushed, r- I'm sure. Oh my yeah, because that's I mean, 2008 that, election I, I cycle, forget, right? I forget yeah. what the, what, which episode it was, but she'd already left the show, I think, but she came yeah, back she came to be back. Palin. Yeah. And... I remember thinking to myself, wait, can I just go over there and say hi to Tina Fey right now? And then her daughter ran up to her and I was like, no, 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 no. You're not, <laughs> you're not going anywhere near that. Yeah, like that whole thing. You also see Pete, the energy in that room where people are running around changing wigs and whatever. It was like, oh boy, my heart rate was well up beyond the normal levels. Um, but I so, remember watching that live at home. Anne Hathaway was the host, I believe. When I hugged Anne Hathaway after rehearsal, I was like, wow, yeah, this is, um, yeah, I, how am I here You guys right crushed now? it. And I, I didn't notice. We had, it would have been maybe a month before we met, but I didn't notice any oh, nerves right. coming off of you. <laughs> so right. You had some of that stone coldness in <laughs> yeah, you, you were, already. Yeah, the, the killer, the stone cold killer. You know what? Once the red light goes on, I'm there. But uh, that's what's been so interesting about this year and last year is that it's been closing a lot of those 10-year loops because Going into Madison Square Garden last year, both with Lord and with Childish Gambino, it was like, wow, I remember the first time I was here. In fact, you guys were playing not that long after, I think we came to see a show when you guys played at Madison Square Garden. Like, I feel like- We haven't the played ca- the garden yet. I'm sorry, what? We're playing it for the first time coming oh up my in God. Wait September. A minute, wait, 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 wait. September 6th, 2019. Wait a minute. Get tickets you, available now. How are you? <laughs> That's what this is all about, by the way. Wait, are you, a, are you, how are you guys feeling about that? MSG? Yeah. Well, I think... How stone, how so, dead and on the inside are you guys right now? Well, Chris and I are both tri-state area people. Right, yeah. Uh, New Jersey and Westchester. Sure. I will say it's probably, it's one of the few places and buildings yeah. with a history and sort of a mythology, sure. I guess. Um, Not unlike that we Saturday haven't, Night Live. Yes, yeah, that yeah, we yeah. haven't done. It's a little bit of a thorny issue for me because I'm a big Nets fan. I was just going to say. <laughs> so we have played Barclays. Hold on. It's have you done, the, have you done you. Prudential? No, never, never played The Rock. Would that be <laughs> bigger for you? Uh, if we played Continental Airlines Arena in 2003. Oh, I see. Yeah. That would have been no, huge I know. for me. And I would have liked to see seen Elvis Costello in 1979. But like, that's just, you know, some the, I mean, go away. Barclays for me was, um, and actually it was one of the few times I... <laughs> As the drummer, often, if you, at least in historically in Vampire Weekend shows, if you're not noticed, that's a good thing. Because you're, you're kind of, you're doing your thing, you're supporting, you're like, you know, the show's, the show's going on, you're doing your thing. Yeah. But if, if you mess up, it's sort of like when you're like, oh, what's he doing there? Um, oh, but in the New York Times review of that Barclays show, they one of the out? rare, they called me out for wearing five Nets jerseys. <laughs> you wore five Concurrent like, Nets jerseys? Uh, you have to have that issue at home, don't you? Or no? I bet my parents do. I, I don't. Oh. I can print it out. I can always print it no, out. No, I'm same. a digital subscriber. Um, I came on stage with five New Jersey era jerseys, and then I peeled them off after a couple, like, oh, couple of songs. Oh, wow. Okay. And it, it culminated with a then Brooklyn star, Brooke Lopez. This is, this is the drummer's dilemma, though, isn't it? Because not only with that— sleeves or not sleeves? No, 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 no. no, 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 no. If, if you fuck up, that's oh, when you're, oh. most, you're the most naked in a that, way of that's anybody. That's part of it, but there's also the other thing, which, I mean, I kind of unkindly call drummer syndrome, which is when you're a keyboard player or a drummer, you're locked to that station. You don't get to do like Bayo does and like bounce <laughs> around the stage and stuff. Like, you're locked to that position. I've been, I've so, been living that for years. No, yeah. no, no, I understand. This is, and it's not just you. You're not alone. There are other drummers in this world. I think there are two ways to go about it, which is like, you know what? It's just, I'm just not going to fuck up. And that's going to be the thing here. Or you're going to try and overcompensate even more to try and draw attention to yourself, even though you're handicapped with this. I mean, I think over the years, I've definitely found ways of capital P, like performing, <laughs> or maybe more scare quotes, performing <laughs> while sitting down. That's another thing. At least a keyboard player has the option of standing to, up. Or, and to like move around. I mean, there sure. was, there was a Rick point. Rick Wakeman that shit. There was a point in the Contra era where we played the song Taxi Cab, mm-hmm. which was sort of like a moment in the show where Chris had like a stand-up bass and I came up to play like a pad like in the front of the stage. And honestly, that was like terrifying. I was so used right. to physically having the, the, you know, the kit in front of me and sort of having this like little zone that was, that was mine that I grew up in essentially, you know, as a performer. Sure. That like even just those like five steps out that was speaking of nervousness. Was definitely I'm sure for yeah. that whole run was like the peak nerves. Was like well, maybe, all right, people can see you now. Maybe that's <laughs> so, a, for somehow like I thought mm. I was like convinced myself that no one 
<laughs> no one was looking at me, so I could just kind of do my thing back here. Well, maybe that's the thing, actually. There's, maybe there's two different kinds of drummers where not all of them have the syndrome where it's like, you know what? This is my home, and I don't want to leave my house. Or there's the people where it's like, I'm real humble. I'm going to, to stay. I'm going to stay in my house, but I need people to know that I'm in my house right now. You know, like, and this is when you build a a roller coaster like Tommy Lee and like do that thing. Right. You're still sat, That's true, but you have to be harnessed. <laughs> I have, as of yet, never been harnessed. But I mean, and the Nets thing it's was coming. a very specific. It's coming. Was a very specific moment for me. I love the Nets thing, but, but wait. The, so wait, Madison Square Garden. <laughs> right. So I think there's been a few times where. Chris has said to the people we work with and and the other people in the band and stuff, like, the place I really want to play, MSG. And so there's been multiple times when it's, like, been on the calendar and then disappeared and been on the calendar and then disappeared for any number yeah, of reasons. Yeah, for me, it's the, single, it's the single venue on the planet where, like, I, I do have this huge sentimental attachment to. And Absolutely. Would mean, like, out of anywhere. Yeah, and you're a Rangers guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Rangers guy. I saw, so my second show was Tom Petty at MSG when I was Yikes. 10 years old. It is easily the like single thing I'm most looking forward to over the next, you know, like 18 months of what we're going to be doing. And uh, when you say your heartbeat didn't go up when you went to headline Coachella, like I, I'm pretty much a stone cold killer too. Like I'm not nervous before we go on stage anymore, but I do think I will be at MSG. I still am a little bit. You're a little, you get a little nervous? <laughs> I still do. Good. Yeah, you're I the don't. only one that still has a heart on the inside. <laughs> yeah, you're not dead inside like <laughs> yeah, Ray and I. Yeah, we're the tin men. Yeah, we're dead inside. <laughs> but, God, Madison Square Garden. But so, so, I didn't realize that you fucking played MSG twice last year, you madman. Like, <laughs> well, uh, see, and I was just, I was trying multiple, to get off wait, on the fact. multiple nights? Multiple nights? Oh, or? no, no, never mind. No, it wasn't twice because, you oh. know what? Lord did Barclays too. Oh, right. And, which I is where that. Yeah, the yeah. night after I tried to flex on you, I was like, I'm at the Rangers Islanders game right now. You're probably stuck in LA because you decided to move. And then you were like, I'm here and I got better seats than you, <laughs> motherfucker. Like, nice. True. Ray tried to stun nice on Gino. me. And I was in the third row. Yep. Yep. That was a and pretty Ray came down. We watched a little flex. bit. Yeah. And then I went back to my <laughs> seats at the. Yeah. Go back up there, Ray. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, talking about closing these circles and what you've done in the past year. There's like a term you you mentioned earlier, which is MD, and you talked about Ludwig, who's the MD for Gambino. Sure. What is an MD? And tell us about your experience becoming an MD. An MD is a musical director, and I really do feel like I don't have the perfect definition for this. I'd be curious to see what you guys think, actually, too. But as far as I'm concerned, a musical director is, especially when it comes to supporting an artist, is someone who's in charge of arranging and for being the kind of the liaison between the band and the artist. Like Ludwig being the MD for Gambino in the early days made all the sense because he also produced those records. And so he had a comprehensive understanding of what the arrangements for the songs were supposed to be. What I've got to do for Lord for her melodrama tour was slightly different because I wasn't in the studio. I had to kind of reverse engineer, okay, how are we going to take these songs from the record and make it into a show that's performed? That's performable. And not every MD performs. Not every MD plays. Of that or tours with the group. Exactly. Like, you know, some of the great ones, they help the band figure out, well, okay, this is what everyone's going to do. And this is how we're either going to be beholden to the recording or not beholden to the recording. This is how we're going to make up for it. Well, you know, on the record, there's, you know, it's like, again, I'm bringing it back to when I saw you guys in Vancouver. I was like, where are the strings? What is, what is it? I, I was so young at the time too. I didn't realize that yeah, you have to make concessions. You have to figure out a way to take what you've made in the studio and bring it out into the world. So yeah, I, I think that's probably the most concise way of putting it is like trying to figure out how do you want to perform this material that if you're lucky enough, the audience has a relationship to it. Me being 22 and seeing you guys in Vancouver, it was like, you know, there's strings all over that record and I'm a string player. I want to see strings. How were we, by the way? What's your bite-sized review of Vampire Weekend at Richard on Richards in, in Vancouver? In like March 2008. March 2008. I remember thinking, this sounds terrible. Sick. <laughs> it sick. sounded so bad. I was like, oh, I just want to go listen to the record. Like I'm done. But then cut to six months later. I don't know how early on you guys were at the time, but I remember cutting to six months later and seeing you guys in Paris or wherever I saw you next. And I was like, oh shit, they figured it out. They figured it out. Sorry if you saw us before uh, summer 2008. We hadn't figured. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, the, well, I remember the Richard and Richard show. I remember the drum riser is like insanely high. Yes. No, it was like, like in the bonkers, corner of the room. It's like five feet high. Yeah. It's I no longer with us. Yeah, that club oh, isn't there anymore, right? Man. So we should speak of the past tense. That wow, drum riser was insanely high. <laughs> I have some friends I made 
He's in got London, little... lived in Vancouver for oh, a long okay. time. And so I would be like, oh, yeah, I played Riches on Riches. And they'd be like, oh, man. And the Oyster Bar with really closed. attractive male servers. Rodney, shout out to Rodney's yeah. in wow, Vancouver. Very attractive All male servers. All the beefcake servers there. <laughs> Love them. But the stage was like in the corner of the room and it went up. Went very high. Yes. Yeah. I remember that. I remember being disappointed there weren't strings. And I remember I was like, wow, okay, they're playing Sheraton's. There were all these things I was judgmental about when I was 22. Nice. That, thankfully, <laughs> no, and yeah, little did you know I what? know that. You know what, man? We still play in Sheraton. I'm aware. <laughs> I, you know what I have? You know what I just got? A Sheraton. <laughs> I tricked out, took it over to Bailey. But yeah, but then cutting to six months later and being like, oh, wow, they really figured it out. That's cool. I didn't know, like, because again, at the time, I was like, I actually don't know if what I'm doing is any good. I, I can't tell what this sounds like out there. And it took, honestly, it took going through that killer's tour and seeing like how involved. That's the other thing. The MD's job is to be in communication, not just with the artist, but with everybody else, with all the other departments, like big or small, depending on how many moving pieces there are, you have to know what lights are doing. You have to know what front of house moves are. You have to know how this all comes together to make a show. I've been lucky enough to do that for Lord this last record So can cycle. you speak to that specific experience of how you, did you just get the record? Did you get stems? I like got the record stems, broken down? I got stems from... How involved was she? She's very involved. There's one thing to be said about Ella is that that's a very smart person who knows where all the pieces are. So it was great because I've heard other stories about people who aren't quite so involved. And Just that sounds like difficult. That of thing. sounds difficult where it's like, no, I want this to be a collaborative process. I want this to be a thing where we're putting on the show together. But anyway, yeah, we got stems from Jack Antonoff and his engineer, Laura Sisk, who are both amazing and, uh, just kind of try to retrofit what a band with the personnel that we had could do with this material. And then, so, so you had a set number of people and, players and the instruments that they played. So what, what was the lineup for Lord? Well, oh, this is interesting because at the beginning of the cycle, again, the, and the first show was Coachella, which I was a little Classic nervous. Classic album cycle. I was nervous for a different reason, though. I was nervous not because of because the what show had hadn't to, been... Because it was the first time the show yeah. was going on and that I had my part to play in it. Not necessarily from the performance side, but from like, oh God, I hope everything works. So you, you briefly felt alive... For one, one untested show. And then, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, again, once the lights went on, I was just, you know, I was just in it. No. But um, when we started last year for the festival shows, we had, I think, a four-piece string section. We had two horns. We had a couple of singers, plus the core band, which was a drummer, and two keyboard players. So, yeah. And over the course of that cycle, there would be times when we would have more singers or less singers, more strings, less strings, more horns, less horns. And that was fun for me because that's something I haven't had as much of an opportunity to do, even though, like I told you, there's nothing better than having a bunch of people on stage trying to put on the same show. Like, I'll, I'm hopeful I'll get back to being able to work with an orchestra someday in that capacity. But like, it was really great getting to put that together. But then not only that, one thing I'd never gotten to do before that tour was work with a choreographer. And working with dancers, you know, trying to have that dialogue with other departments where it's like, well, if I, if I do this, what are you going to do? Because and if you do that, what should I, you know, that was, kind of was like, so the choreographer was also working from the record and then sure. depending on, on where they were coming from and where you were coming from, you would work it out and see how. It and, would... and also for, obviously from Lord herself, where these were conversations I wasn't a part of, but it was like, what is it that you're trying to put out there? So in one way or another, everything comes together at the end and you try and be as much on the same page as possible and it's fun. It's fun putting on a show. And that's your first MD gig. That's my first MD gig. That's insane. Yeah. Pretty good. Wow. Yeah. I think this whole thing is insane. Yeah. I think the first show being at Red Rocks is insane. I think they'll like... Are you just realizing it now that you're you're sort of spreading it out in one cohesive storyline that how no, insane it is? No, I mean, I've, until talking to you guys, it's never occurred to me that like, you know, it's because none of this was planned. Like I said, it's just like, you know what? If this opportunity is there, then just go. If it feels like it's going to be fun, go and do that. I mean, which is as I get older, and I wonder with you guys too, like as I get older, it's like, wait a minute. I should really have a plan. <laughs> I should really yeah, I mean, have a plan. Our, I feel like the way Vampire Weekend has gone, it was a slightly more of a direction. Sure. But only insofar as like, this is the thing that we we want to make work. We really believe sure. in it and we're going to do the steps that we need to and do. this speaks to the difference, I suppose, about you guys have had this stability, which is, especially on paper, I'm like, 
oh yeah, that sounds nice. That sounds really good. At the same time, I feel so lucky that I've gotten to work with so many different kinds of bands and so many different kinds of acts. I mean, I think my stock go-to thing to say about it when people ask me is that like, oh yeah, I just get bored. But the reality of it is like... You mean when they ask you why why you've changed groups or... Yeah, how, how is yeah. it that you've come to play with so many different artists and so many different kinds of artists? And I, I think what I generally say is I get bored. But I mean, the reality of it is I just go where things are happening. You know what I mean? It, again, none of that was planned either. I mean, if I knew that about myself, that I would get bored, then I would probably set it up to be in such a way that I can always be doing different things. But the reality of it is like, after the Killers, I met the Bronx, who were opening for the Killers, which was just a bizarre thing. And they needed a violin player after I rapped with the Killers. And they said, do you want to go on tour? It's like, yeah, obviously. I don't want to... I remember going home from that last Killers show and going back to my house in San Diego and watching Almost Famous, the director's cut, like <laughs> three, three, choice. three times. No, bad choice. It put me in the worst yeah. headspace because I was like, you know what? I'll go back to San Diego and just like hang for a while. This is, you know, I'm, 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 I'm off. I'm off the clock now. And watching that movie three times in a row fucked me up so bad. I was like, I can't be here. I got to be out there. I got to be on the bus. I can't be here. And then a couple of weeks later, the Bronx guys called and said, hey, we need a violin player. Our, I think our, our violin player is pregnant and she can't tour now. And like, yep, I'll do it. I'll do it. This is the mariachi version of the band. I was like, I'll do it for a suit. I don't even need to get paid. I just need to not be here and I need to be out there. That's really yeah. what's driven most of this is like, I can't be at home. Right. I need to be out there. And that led to, you know, I spent four years with the Bronx and because of them, I moved to LA and... That's when I met the guys who ended up being in the Gambino band. That's how, I don't know, you guys know how this is. Like you, you end up running into people you don't ever expect to see again. And that's the nice thing about the road. I'm one of those people that doesn't say goodbye. Yeah. Which is terrible etiquette, first of all. But <laughs> at the same time, like, it's just because I know I'm going to see you again. Yeah. Yeah. Even though some, and when that's not the case, sometimes and I'm sure we've, you know, all lost people, but when that's not the case, I feel really like an asshole. But like in the optimistic sense, it's like, no, it's, it's not a big deal because I'll see you again. I'll yeah. see you this time next year right here where we're standing right have now. Have you seen the Eagles documentary? Yes, I have. When we're going back through the last like 12 years of your life <laughs> and the way that you've been describing it, it does take me back to the Joe Walsh quote. And he, he says in the movie, it's someone else's He's quote. kind of a gun. He, he yeah. started oh, out as oh, a gun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But he's, he says, you know, when you're living your life, you're going through the quote is like something about you're living your life. It makes no sense. When you look back upon it, you see a finely crafted novel. And I'm seeing I actually see a finely crafted novel well, before me. All the like resolutions going back to the garden 10 years later, headlining Coachella. I'm seeing this this first finely crafted novel. And I think we should do this thing again in 10 years and have the next finely crafted novel. I mean, all I can think about when you put it like that is like, oh, the dread of thinking about the next 10 years is just like, <laughs> oh my God, I hope, I hope I can keep it together for that long. I mean, because again, I've been wandering through this, let's call it a chapter of whatever this is, this first part of the novel or whatever, with this underlying sense of like the bottom might fall out of, of this at any moment. And I mean, we have that we too. Have, uh, I, I, think no, no, I think everyone we, has. No, and that's that, what's been yeah. that's what's been nice is like realizing, okay, you're not alone in that. But don't forget it. That just because every, I mean, this is maybe the, the product of my upbringing or whatever. But like, just because, just because everybody else is scared, doesn't mean you shouldn't be scared, man. Like, it's just it could go. I don't know, especially with again that thing of not having that stability. Yeah, it's always in the back of my. But mind. there is, a, I think, there's an interesting other or other side to the stability point is that. Just by the nature of Vampire Weekend and, you know, when when we tour, obviously that's that's all we can do. And I think rightfully so. But there is some part, I mean, I wish that I had, when I did have gotten the chances to do other things and play with other people, mm. I find it fascinating. And I, I mean, I, I quite frankly wish I did more of it mm -hmm. because I feel like the more you learn and the more you play a song that's like out completely outside of, of sure. the normal world, that whatever you learn there or whatever you learn, like, doesn't work over there, you know, kind of feeds back in and, and rounds you out more. For sure. I mean, <laughs> I guess if we're looking at it from a how can I be a better person <laughs> kind of perspective or, or whatever, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, why wouldn't we want to try and have as many different experiences as possible? Yeah. So I definitely feel fortunate to have had that 
in this part of the novel. Jesus. <laughs> God. I, I That sounds, again, That I can't deal with that because it just sounds like so much hubris and ugh. ugh. <laughs> well, if, if, you, if you want to preview the novel, you can check out Ray's Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, you, I think, remain the sexiest hired gun that I know. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this, well, man. Add, this add that awesome. to the Wikipedia page, yeah. Well, that was our conversation with hired gun extraordinaire, Mr. Ray Swen. I gotta say, that was definitely the most educational episode thus far of The Road Taken. For sure. I mean, I think we're aware of the luck and sort of the crazy situation that we've been able to have our careers in terms of just this one band where a lot of people have to figure it out. And Ray is someone who we've known for a long time and seen throughout a lot of these stages. And it was really cool to hear some of the the ways he got there and the the BTS of the Ray Swen experience. Yeah, I just, uh, I loved it. I don't know. It was, uh, I like having educational episodes. I think if we do enough Are we ever going to come out of a talk and you're going to say you didn't like it? No, of course <laughs> not. No, well, that's the thing. We only, if it's on the road okay. taken, it's a great conversation. Other podcasts, they will say beforehand, this was a great conversation. It should be presumed if it's a conversation on the road taken that it's a great one. But, you know, since this is only our fifth episode, I think it's important to hammer home the greatness of the okay, conversation. Cool. I'm Eventually, glad it'll it, become yeah. like an unstated thing. But I don't know. I like having educational episodes. I think we should keep doing that. Maybe do so many that instead of being in the music section of podcasts, we get in the educational section. Get an extra feature? I feel, I feel like that episode could be in the educational section of the you know Apple podcast or any podcast store. I mean, I'm not sure if there's going to be any questions about hired guns on the SATs in the next couple of years, but you never know. It's true. Yeah, there, there might be. Um, where are we right now? What's today's date? We are in um, Mexico City. Uh, today's date. Let me look it. It's October twenty second, ten twenty two. Oh, I gotta call my friend Brian. It's his birthday. Happy birthday, Brian! Brian set up the drums the first time Vampire Weekend played at David Letterman oh, in two thousand eight, right, and uh, today he turns thirty five years old. So, first off, shout out to Brian. Wait, but, if we're doing birthdays, yeah. Happy birthday, mom! Oh yes, oh right. This past week. Anyways, we're in Mexico City. We have we played one show last night. Tonight is our last show of the tour and we've been doing we've been hitting it hard man i gotta say we've been out for like two months and we haven't had anything that i would call meaningful time home where i would say that's i don't know what would you call meaningful time home actually ct in terms of a number of days yeah what what when do you feel like you've actually been home because like we went out for about three and a half weeks then we were home for three nights that's not meaningful time i think home. it's a week of weekdays doesn't have to be weekdays. Five, five, five nights. Yeah, yeah. So we haven't had that in in a while. And uh, I mean, I don't know. The show last night in Mexico City was incredible. I'm looking forward to it tonight. But I'm also a little bit looking forward to getting that meaningful time home. Is there stuff you're looking forward to doing? Getting off the road a little bit? Um, I don't know. Halloween. <laughs> okay, nice. <laughs> That's in this time off. That's uh, nice. I don't have too many plans. I don't know. I, I think yeah. I know you have. It's your birthday. Speaking of birthdays. Coming up I was soon. born a week after my friend Brian, so my birthday is a week from when we record this. But actually, here's something interesting. I'm 34 years old as I record this, but when people listen to this, I will oh be 35 years old. Love. Time. We love talking about time on the road taken. Anyways, yeah, it's just been a, it's been a great series of dates, and I mean, we've been hitting it hard, having fun. The crowd, yeah, the crowd last night. There was one particular moment um, that I think will stick with me for a while. Was this the first time this has ever happened where we finished a song so. and there's a naturally sort of in any context, even if you play it poorly, kind of there's a an applause that surges. You know, there's a the volume mm-hmm. comes up and generally the volume goes right back down. But in this particular case, it was after the song Step. Yep. Yeah. The um that once the the surge of applause, it didn't not only did it not go down, but it sort of increased and yeah. became this sort of like wall of of positive yeah. yelling in a way that was was rare to me and also the um i thought the camera light in oh, lieu yeah. of lighters in hannah hunt was that also was quite, quite stirring yesterday um yeah i know it's dangerous to name favorites as a touring musician as someone who has to do the same thing in very many different cities but i will say that mexico city is my favorite place to play music on the planet whoa yeah, it absolutely. Not even, not even go top five. You're gonna say no. One. It is my it's my favorite place. Yeah, I, I've thought about it and I've DJed here many times over the years. I've played 
some solo shows and obviously been here with the band. And then after last night, it's official for me. So it's a great place to finish a, a long run of playing shows. I mean, we also, we launched a fucking podcast during the same period of time. So it's been, we've been doing stuff, man. It's true. Um, so yeah, I think it's now time to turn to the mailbag segment, but also just, you know, in the first episode of the show, we said we like getting feedback and we got a couple emails with feedback, but sort of we keep getting questions, but the feedback element has been tapered off. So I just want to remind the listeners, you can also send feedback to our email, which is what CT? Oh God, I'm not even sure. It's the road road taken taken. at the ringer.com. It's the road taken at the ringer.com. Now CT cannot actually access the email still. And let's be clear. This is sort of a bit, but it's actually kind of, it's actually not, (laughs) it's not quite a bit. And we actually got our first email that I forwarded to you. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it yet. That doesn't really relate to the podcast. It's more of a personal (laughs) inquiry. So if you actually want to hit up CT in any meaningful way, even outside of the podcast, just send an email to that and I'll I'll forward it to him. I'm on on foreign data roaming, so I I have not checked my email. I'm reading them all. So yeah, it's uh, theroadtakenatthering.com. Send us questions. And uh, this week, I'd like to read an email from someone by the name of Clark. What's up, Clark? CT and Bayo, love the podcast. You guys have a very hospitable interviewing style and great chemistry as two hosts. Okay, that's feedback. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> listening to your show made me wonder what rockumentaries you all watched prior to touring yourselves, and if what you saw was true to life for the dubs once you started touring, or was it a different experience? Clark in Nashville. That's a great question, Clark in Nashville. Thank yeah, I you. feel like you would like it. That was, I mean, and I know I read it and I read a bunch of them, but I really picked this one <laughs> out for you. For and I, and there's a little bit of a stinger, but we'll, we'll you can answer the question first. Um, all right. Well, the two come to mind, one of which is going to be extremely on brand. And that one's called Bittersweet Motel, which is a documentary made by Todd Phillips, who has gone on to great cinema heights. And I remember seeing this, in Rochester, New York, where I was going to visit my extended family for Thanksgiving, and somehow it was playing in a theater. So I think that mm. added to it a little bit. It wasn't like yeah, a VHS nice. thing. I saw it in a theater, and I was kind of new to the fish, the whole thing then. And yeah, watching that and watching them, obviously it's a lot about their touring and and just sort of their whole thing. And that 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 movie was extremely impactful for me. The other one probably that is a little bit more closer to life or that has that I saw for the first time probably within the first year of Vampire Weekend starting to tour, which is the movie Dig. Or is it oh, yeah, yeah. Dig? Because there's an exclamation point. That's good. Um, thank you. Uh, <laughs> which, that movie, I honestly have not watched it since then. So that was, whatever, 10 years ago. But um, it follows two bands that kind of start out from the same point. And then, at least over the cor- or the time frame of the movie, they kind of, their fortunes vastly diverge. Mm-hmm. Uh, with one sort of conquering European festivals as it looked and, yeah. and which is the Dandy Warhols and then one kind of devolving into onstage fisticuffs and and dysfunction yeah. uh, that being the Brian Jonestown massacre yeah although we heard recently that he that they're selling more tickets than ever so in certain places we but I, so okay but I, I want to address the second part of the question okay. oh this is the stinger that I didn't no hear. no 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 this isn't the stinger oh. but was this true to life did dig do you feel like your experience starting out did it make you think of dig or bittersweet motel or any part of being on tour being a touring musician I think there's, if I went back and watched, I'd have to rewatch it to really yeah, yeah. be secure about it. But I feel like there's a lot of dig that does ring true. Okay. Of a lot of time in vans, a lot, you know, even that was the first time I'd really seen like a a big daytime European festival crowd from like a band's perspective. And and it was, you know, it's kind of like mind blowing when you see that. And then that following summer, we ended up being there. And I, I remember thinking about dig. I think that, you know, there was some stuff of, getting pulled over and vans getting searched, which actually happened to us the other day and uh, on our way to the airport in Monterey. We did get stopped, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, Dig, that there was a lot of truth to Dig. Well, now let me give you Clark Stinger from the email. Wait, do you want to answer this? Oh, um, I mean, I would say my favorite rock documentary from before I started touring is Some Kind of Monster. And uh, that's the Metallica movie where they get therapy. And um, it makes being in a band seemed like a fairly joyless experience. Um, I would say that most tour and rock documentaries probably make tour seem more fun than it actually is, but some kind of monster is actually worse than my experience of touring. So if you create, there's like a spectrum, the the truth is somewhere between some kind of monster and the typical tour documentary. Great answer. 
It almost seems like you read the question ahead of time. It, yeah, that is the <laughs> that's the advantage that I have by with this. Um, so now Clark adds, "P.S. Ask CT since he Uh-oh. still doesn't know how email works." And I like how he said just how email works, not how the email works. Since he still doesn't know how email works, if he's aware of how his favorite NBA squad was almost renamed the Swamp Dragons, the combination of oversized starter jackets with that logo and young New Jersey youths in the mid-90s would have been an ugly stain on our nation's history. Did you know this? Uh, I did know that. Have you seen the logo? It's in the email. I'll just show you real quick. I feel like I've seen imagery of it. Yes. Okay. That is what I have seen. Um, If it had happened in that era, yes. Admittedly. It would have been kind of gnarly. However, those fucking Toronto Raptors jerseys from the same era mm-hmm. that were, oh my God, like a, the design-wise so crazy, people love those things now. Yep. And in fact, they're bringing them back. because okay. they're so, so I think that, if anything, this would have created more nostalgia. Although, the Swamp Dragons is, is not, I mean, the Nets is not a particularly ringy name. Swamp either. Dragon is an interesting concept. I think, well, I think it was like, you know, Meadowlands and okay. having to do with the ecology of, of their turf. I like it. Um, would you consider yourself a swamp dragon? I grew up way closer to the Pine Barrens. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know what whatever the fauna okay. is there. Okay. Uh, I but think, but yeah. thank you, thank you, Clark, for trying to roast my nets. Uh, actually, we're, we're we're speaking just hours away from the start of the NBA season. So congrats oh, to everyone thrilling. out there. Who cares? Is there anything you want to plug? I want to plug my mom's birthday that happened last yeah. week. And uh Vampire Weekend in Europe, uh November. I don't know. I'm going to plug my birthday. Wish me happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Very birthday heavy outro here. Uh, October 29th, turning 35. Um, Welcome to the club, man. I know. Officially middle-aged. Again. I got a couple texts. People were upset about that. Oh, really? Yeah, people in their mid-30s are other friends that I would identify as, self-identify as early middle-aged. But anyways, you know, whatever. That was our episode. Next week, we will be talking to Michelle Branch. Very exciting. And uh, I'd like to leave you, we'd like to leave you with a quote from the winner of the 13th season of American Idol, Caleb Johnson. I love being on the road. I love that lifestyle, traveling city to city, rocking out and moving on to the next place. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.